Welcome to Sacred Realms, a podcast where two rabbis discuss science fiction and fantasy through a Jewish lens. This month's episode is At Journey's End. I am Rabbi Lindsay Healy Pollock, here again with my colleague, Rabbi Andrew Pepperstone. Great to be here with you again, Lindsay. For our eighth episode, we are going to answer the question of the month, talk about what we've been watching or reading since our last episode, and perhaps a bit of news. And next, we'll return to our main topic, At Journey's End. For our final segment, From the Geniza, we'll dust off some of our favorites from the past. So, for the question of the month this month, Shayla... Since we're talking about journeys this week, what has been one of the most impactful journeys thus far in your life? So I would say that the most impactful journey, which I did on a regular basis, was actually the journey from my house in Los Angeles. I lived in the San Fernando Valley to my high school, um, Hamilton Music Academy in the city um, every day. That was up at 5.30, on the bus at 6.30, at school at 7.30, and then home again at 5.30 after a long day, five days a week for three days a year. Like that was, like that regular journey was um, outstanding. My middle school experience basically was on the whole fine and in many ways miserable, socially miserable, academically fine but socially had a lot of miserable pieces to it and i was very happy to get in a bus for one hour twice a day every day for three years and avoid those people not the friends i had but everybody else that hour every day took me out of the valley into the city and put me in a school with people who and diverse as we were Ethnically, culturally, religiously, socioeconomically, we all shared the same values of loving music and performing. And that just made high school good. And that journey every day was just full part of what I did every day for three years. And yeah, it was sort of like a, you know, kind of like got me also towards that next phase of leaving home for college and beyond sort of kind of got me away from home out of the familiar into the unfamiliar for you know three years sort of like a middle journey you know lots of companions trials along the way but it certainly made high school extraordinary so it was that bus journey every day that was so good how about you I feel like this is a hard question for me to answer, and I had first interpreted this primarily through the lens of a more about the metaphorical journey rather than oh, that's good too. That's good too. But I, I would say, I mean, for me, what came to mind first was the journey towards becoming Jewish, and then ultimately going to rabbinical school, which largely mapped onto graduating from college in Southern California and then moving to New York after graduating, although it was a a journey that began uh, when I was still in in undergrad with many stops along the way. And I think maybe I talked about some parts of this in our first episode when we were introducing ourselves. But 
a gradual process of first things coming into my awareness and piquing my curiosity to want to learn and just having these little stops along the way where something else came into my awareness or into my path that encouraged me to explore more. And so that curiosity began being piqued really in my junior year of college and continuing over the summer. And I had decided when I was going into my senior year that I was going to figure out where the Jewish community on campus was having things and and start exploring that way and start experiencing things as opposed to just reading about them. And yeah, so I was like, made a beeline as soon as I came back to campus in the fall of my senior year to our campus religious life center, picked up the calendar of events that were happening at Hillel, and I started showing up every week for Torah study on Friday afternoons before Kabbalat Shabbat and Friday night dinner. And I just kind of threw myself in and was like, I want to learn everything about this that I can and experience it. And there was Talmud study on Sundays. And so I would often come for that. And the rabbi, after a couple of weeks, was like, it's kind of not the typical thing for someone to show up in their senior year, sort of wanting to know what my my story was. And it just happened that she was co-teaching an intro to Judaism class um, with the local reform rabbi in, in the in the congregation in town, and I had a bike that I had gotten, I think, spring of my junior year, and I was like, oh, okay, this is far enough away that I can't walk. I didn't have a car, but I could ride my bike there. This process of riding my bike on Sunday mornings to go to the Intro to Judaism class at the Reform Synagogue in town is a piece of it that I hadn't really been actively thinking about for a while. But there's something that's really standing out to me about that. You know, of course, it being Southern California, you can do this year round um, (laughs) without too much interruption in, in terms of weather. But the willingness to venture off of this relatively self contained campus, what was familiar to me already, putting myself in a situation where I was in a very different life stage than most of the other people in the class and having to go into places that were not familiar to me before, whether it was the context of Hillel on campus or going to this synagogue space and spending extra time when I was a full-time student doing more learning, I think really, really says something to me now as I'm in a position of helping guide people who are also exploring Judaism. There was clearly something that was driving me to do this. I definitely had a passion and commitment to be taking out that much of my time um, to dedicate to something that was not a part of what had to be my academic or school experience. Oh, for sure. I mean, um, right. That's a, there's a lot that you would do that. A lot. Yeah. And I, and I was also spending the time on campus, too. It was several hours a week between Torah study, Kabbalah Shabbat, the dinner and socializing afterwards, and the Talmud study class. 
at a certain point, yeah, I was spending a pretty significant chunk of time for an undergrad student on this. Oh, and then I was doing Hebrew, I was studying Hebrew. And yeah, I hadn't really fully thought about that until I started kind of telling this story. It was very clear to me that I had encountered something that was really important and significant and that I wanted more of. Yeah. My high school, I mean, my story was not at all Jewish per se. Right. I, you know, I, I was involved in like Jewish youth group all through high school. Mm-hmm. My, my youth group actually had a Jewish student union club at my high school and they did all over Los Angeles. Very involved there. I was a president for two years of that. So I, mean, I, I had a Jewish life, but that wasn't really about the journeying part for me. Yeah. But it was, and it was funny. I mean, yes, I was leaving home to go to this other high school, but really school was not home. School was a place I had to endure mm-hmm. to then get back to my actual home. But like going to this other high school, going to Hamilton Academy of Music, that was actually going home. That was like going home, every leaving home every day to actually go to my other home every day. Mm. And at the end of the first year, it was a brand new program that year. None of us wanted summer to come. It was miserable ending the school year. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was like, we were like in tears. We're like, we do not want this to end. And we actually met online, you know, especially during COVID kind of like, like, did we all have this experience? Like, did we all they go? Yeah. Everybody agreed that the experience was extraordinary. We all agree where we were not delusional, not hormonal, we were not lying to ourselves. It actually was that good. It actually was that good and worth it because everyone took wow. crazy long bus rides. But I think for me, what I kind of took away from it was that being there and making music with other people, like actually being part of a community in that sense, was profound. And I definitely still find that over my rabbinate, making music with groups is actually still a big part of what I'm looking for. Jewishly, mm-hmm. so been to Joey Weisenberg's Rising Song Institute a couple of times, and it felt a lot like that. So I kind of like point like the beginning of that Jewish focus in my career, beginning in high school. Mm-hmm. There was something about the way that you said this bus ride connecting you then between two homes that I'm curious about and thinking about as we think about journeys and what it means to go on a journey and some of the questions Mm -hmm. that we were thinking about oh home is either the return home as the end point of the journey and so you've like now introduced what's the idea of having two homes can you have two homes and what is that how does that position the journey in between if you're traveling between homes in some way right and it's it's not always like the big journey out into the wild it's often like the little journeys that actually accumulate and add up you know your bike rides my bus rides very significant formative mini journeys that happen on a regular basis that took us to you know on longer journeys later on Mm. yeah that's interesting The, the little journeys that you may not even identify as being the journey while you're in it yes indeed and for those listening, you can drop us an email about your favorite journey at sacredrealmspodcast at gmail.com. And now let's talk a bit about what we've been watching and or reading lately, which given that we are recording in the middle of Sukkot and it's been the fall high holidays, 
Not as much, perhaps, for sure, because we've been busy with other things. But still, you know, some things here and there. Yeah, I'm still very, very much behind on foundation, but been trying to catch up on that and getting to some very exciting and fun parts of the show. Still season one, but I'm very intrigued and excited to keep seeing where it goes and we were talking a bit about some some connections that we might draw with our topic this episode that I might come back to later. But, you know, right, the travel between worlds across the empire has been sort of a, a theme that was standing out to me as I was watching. And because there's time travel, too, I thought that I think adds a different component to this idea of journeys. You're traveling, you're maybe being frozen, and you are going to end up someplace 30 years from now, for example. And so, right, thinking about journey being both through space and time, potentially, is an interesting dimension that I'd be curious to explore more. Or coming back to a place only to find that things have changed in the time that you were away is, is something that w- was coming up as I was thinking about as they were talking about you know the ship that is jumping <laughs> on an erratic and unpredictable pattern in season one of foundation was, was bringing up some some interesting thoughts about that in terms of other shows I had a, a congregant who was not aware that I had this podcast, who recommended to me the show Midnight Mass. Apparently, maybe has some sci-fi fantasy themes, so I'm curious to explore that more. I watched one episode, and it was in the middle of somewhere between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur that I watched it, so I may have to jog my memory about what happened. And I'm not sure if this exactly fits our genres, but kind of. I've been watching What We Do in the Shadows on Hulu. Absolutely, it does. Well, that sh- that is that mm, that is a weird show. My middle kid kind of got me to watch many episodes of it, <laughs> and it's by Jermaine Clement and Taika Waititi, two of my favorite Australian New Zealand comic creators. Oh my gosh, that show is because they were in the original movie, and the TV uh-huh. show is like a spinoff of the world they created. It is so weird. Vampire <laughs> living in Staten Island, the worst borough. So they say. <laughs> I just oh love God. the scenes of like, a bureaucracy like appearing. One guy turns into a bat, or a vampire turns into a bat and gets you know taken in by animal control. Oh yes, um, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> I like the psychic vampire who works in office setting. Oh yeah, he just well, drains your energy by just energy meaningless chit chat. Who encounters the emotional vampire and like they have oh this my God. Like, vampire battle. It's oh. it's amazing. Yeah. And they even affect the other vampires. Mm-hmm. Like he actually is the most powerful among them in that sense where he can drain anybody of their mm-hmm. energy, even another vampire. Right. There have been many moments that I've quite enjoyed and laughed out loud. And it's it's definitely like met the need that I have, like, sometimes you need the short form television show. Like, I just want something that's like 22 to 30 minutes. Yeah. And now, you know, a lot of shows are much longer than that. And I love the longer form shows. But sometimes I'm like, okay, I've watched something that was a a little bit longer show, still have some time, kind of want something a little bit lighter as it's getting late and I'm feeling tired. And so this has been nice to kind of have as an add on. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great show. 
Yeah, sometimes you want a sonnet, not an entire Shakespearean play. Give me a short form. So are we saying then that what we do in the shadows is a sonnet? No, but I do think that the sitcom time frame mm-hmm. creates a time constraint that can that, that then gives you the boundaries to create something interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that tight 22 minutes plus mm-hmm. commercials is a good, it's a good boundary to say, what can you do in that time frame? Yeah. A sonnet, here you go, 14 lines, go. What can you do? Right. Yeah, constraints like that, I think, actually bring out a lot of creativity. Right. And also enjoying Nadia, who keeps reconnecting <laughs> with her lover who has been reincarnated in different forms. And Gregor, but he's now some guy, I don't remember what the name is in this current lifetime, who works for like a parking garage. Yeah, something like um, something just very boring name. Right. And he, you know, she keeps recalling him Gregor. It's great. Yeah. It really is. And that totally is fantasy. That is absolutely mm-hmm. fantasy. So it is but within now, our purview, having just dri- Yeah, having just driven into New York City and had to park in a garage last night. It's like <laughs> now I can never see these garages the same way again. Who knows how many lovers reincarnate are working in them. <laughs> maybe. 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 So I've been watching Ahsoka, which ends tonight, actually, with the finale. And it definitely has been some interesting journey is a big theme here. Basically, the entire season is, you know, people trying to find a way to journey from one galaxy to another using either hyperspace engines or using the migratory pathways of purgles, who are space whales who travel through hyperspace by using the force. They're actually force-sensitive space mammals that travel intergalactic routes, which is actually what creates hyperspace technology and makes it possible because they actually use computers to do the calculations that force sensitives do intuitively. Mm-hmm. That sentence sounds like absolute gibberish without context. <laughs> <laughs> so there's been about, you know, what will they find in the new galaxy? Will it be so unfamiliar? What will it, what will, where, will, where will it lead? The, the, the path to Peridia is sort of what they call it. And sort of seeing Ahsoka go on her journey, grappling with Anakin and Darth Vader's dual legacy. She's grappling with that. Everyone's grappling with their own life journey at some point. Sabine Wren grappling with Mandalorian learning the Jedi arts. Can she actually become a Jedi? Is she still a Mandalorian? And these two mysterious dark Jedi... Balin Skull and, and Shin Hati. We don't know what Balin Skull is going for. He's on a journey towards something calling him, some kind of like force based siren song. We don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. We might learn tonight. And, and uh, Shin Hati looking more for power within old classic political structures. So they're interesting. And there's this journey of Grand Admiral Thrawn. And the Night Sisters of Dathomir, again, all that sounds like gibberish with no context, back to the Star Wars galaxy where they will hope to bring back the Empire or other things that are unclear. So it's been exciting. Very exciting. Yeah. A lot of cool themes, you know, mentors, mentees, their relationship is a big theme throughout it all the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I'm watching Invasion on Apple TV. That's been great. It's like a just interesting, very human-centered alien invasion mystery show 
enjoying that as it comes out. Not my like top of my list, but it's been good. I'm also watching Foundation Season 2. I'll just say it was a very exciting season with a fantastic ending. I recommend it highly. And then I'm watching... Is there a Season 3 coming? There will be. There will be. And I watched something. Then I watched something that's very different. It is sci-fi and fantasy related, and it ties into another genre. But since it is on quote a streaming service, it counts, which is the show Dimension Twenty. Do you know of the show? I don't. There is a streaming service called Dropout, formerly College Humor. They've officially oh, rebranded. No. One of their shows is called Dimension Twenty, where game masters, in particular Brennan Lee Mulligan, who is a remarkable talent, is the game master for a role-playing game campaign with six other people, actors, improv actors, writers, comedians from the dropout roster, and he has them go through um, role-playing game campaigns. I watched one, I'm watching one right now called Fantasy High, which is Dungeons and Dragons, but following six freshmen as they go through their adventuring high school years. <clears throat> so it is fantasy, uh, but it's watching people play a Dungeons and Dragons campaign on on my screen. So it is very interesting to watch, and you have to kind of like be prepared for like the, the slower pace storytelling of a role playing game, which I do enjoy. Now they've done like many many other settings. They've done New York at Christmas. They've done the mind of a scientist called Ventopolis inside the the mind of somebody where everyone's playing a certain part of his mind. Someone's paying his attention. Someone's playing hyperfixation, curiosity, impulse, conscience, etc. That was very interesting. Hmm. And I think about this in a Jewish way because the storytelling aspect is amazing. How people kind of just kind of just like create stories together. And the rabbis are master storytellers. And I think that there's a lot one can do with Jewish role-playing games or Jewish settings in role-playing games that is unexplored. Like picking a period of history, knowing what is set. Like this happens, this happens. These are the, the real world people, boundaries, parameters, the events that must happen. And then role-playing people within that setting bringing in Jewish sources, Jewish text, Jewish experience, but in a, but in a role-playing game setting. I think there's a, there's a lot of potential. to, And people are doing this. It's happening. I think that would be very interesting. So I'm watching more and more Dimension 20 and just marveling at the Game Master's ability to create story, roll with things, let people co-tell the story, and create non-player characters, give them voice, emotions expression motivation that everyone's like playing against really just tremendous stuff that's really really cool and that's what we've been watching and reading lately so a little bit of in the news so Lindsay, i was looking at what is going on in marvel cinematic universe and saw that they're bringing in sabra who basically is an Israeli version of Captain America, who's going to be a featured character in the next Captain America movie called Captain America New World Order. She'll be played by Shira Haas, who was in the show Stiesel. She played Ruchami. And she's also the main character in the show Unorthodox, which I have read the book about the bio of 
but have not seen the show and sort of saw that Sabra will be appearing in the upcoming Marvel Cinematic Universe. And there's been some criticism about her portrayal, mostly from Palestinian people and supporters about the decision to include the character at all. And Marvel Studios, either because they are or in response to that, I don't really know, said that they are going to be taking a new approach to the character in terms of how they're going to be portraying her, which is not strange because they've they've often taken new takes on characters all the time and do not feel beholden to stick with the comic source material slavishly ever. They've adapted it for a new decade, new century, new millennium, all the time. So I don't know much more about it than that, but I just note that we're going to be having an Israeli Jewish character up coming in the MCU. And I'm curious about it, just to curious to see how they're gonna portray it. She's short. That's my that's my one actual thought. Mm-hmm. Like, that's usually taller, but you know, Ant Man, height's not a thing. So <laughs> Right. And and also, I mean, when you said commented that she was short, it just reminded me of like Another short Jewish woman, Dr. Ruth Westheimer, who as a young person had made Aliyah and actually fought in the Israeli War of Independence slash First Arab-Israeli War as a sharpshooter. So, you know, being a tiny Jewish woman does not prevent one from having kind of military esque prowess maybe Um, it'll be a more dr ruth oriented portrayal of sabra that would be fun that would be fun and shira haas is i think an extraordinary actress i'm delighted to get somebody of her caliber to play the role i think in stiesel she was magnificent i heard she's good unorthodox i just i just haven't seen the show yeah i i did see her in an unorthodox and i felt like she did a good job although you know there there are often critiques of of that show in different ways but it's interesting counterbalancing that with like her portrayal her character in Stiesel as like this is like a a very much immersed in the world of like quite traditional orthodox communities in Israel yeah and Um, no one's trying to leave and feels oppressed they're just living their lives yeah they're just living their lives exactly so so yeah i think she clearly has not has not been pigeonholed into one type of character so that's nice to see and i'm very curious like as to what marvel's you know new direction for this might be i am kind of curious about the (laughs) i don't know it immediately stresses me out that the subtitle is new world order because there is like yeah order conspiracy theory and like you know, anytime there's like cons- concern about domination of a, a world government um, that often ties into anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and the involvement mm-hmm. of an Israeli character in such a show um, is also concerning me. So <laughs> I'm like, what is going to happen? Yeah, so. I'm definitely I'm also curious to see what is the basic plot yeah. of this one. In a different note, Unorthodox is being turned into a musical. And I heard (laughs) through the grapevine that it's going to be the story of the central character from the autobiography, but the counterpoint is going to be her grandmother who entered that world looking for comfort, solace, community, 
and as like a counterpoint to the granddaughter looking to leave that world. So it'll be a little more nuanced than perhaps the autobiography or the TV show might have been. So curious that that's not that's not our genre, but just sort of like yeah. I heard, heard, heard that through is the Is that grade. going to be a stage production? Yeah, yeah. It's going to be stage uh. production with has a lot of like good, solid, you know, Broadway support behind that. So that is upcoming in the next few years. That's very interesting. I'll look out for that. Indeed. And then I was thinking about other upcoming Jewish Marvel characters. And I could think of two just to kind of keep our eyes on. One is The Thing from the Fantastic Four. And we know that is being rebooted again for the third time and the character ben grimm who is the thing he is a canonically jewish character i've even seen the comic book pages where he remembers his bar mitzvah etc and we also have of course magneto the leader one of the leaders of the mutants in the x-men saga and he is eric lenshare who in the cinematic versions previous is a child lives through the Holocaust, a mutant Nazi identifies him as being a mutant and helps him unlock his magnetic powers. And Magneto, of course, when he kind of becomes an adult and realizes that mutants are going to be are being treated like the Jews were and the Romani and others in the Holocaust decides to not play nice with governments, but to fight back and to fight against the government as he wishes he could have fought against the Nazis in World War II, which is kind of why he is who he is. So there's one scene in one of the X-Men films where one of the mutants shows Magneto his mutant tattoo, and Magneto says, I already have a tattoo, I'm not going to add any more, and shows him his numbers from Auschwitz. So there certainly is this you know, Holocaust survivor consciousness that has inhabited Magneto in the recent films. How they're going to portray him going forward, I'm curious. But he is a canonically Jewish character. And of course, we also had um, Moon Knight. I forget the name of the character. Oscar Isaac played him in the series. That character is also canonically Jewish mm-hmm. as well. <laughs> Ironically, inhabited by an Egyptian god. What can I say? <laughs> That's kind of funny. So um, I, what, I, what I know... So, some of the Magneto story too is that they had actually published I think like the Jewish part of his background had appeared in some of the comics mm. um, they, there was one that was focused exclusively on him um, and his backstory that was I'm looking up was released in 2008 so that that focuses on him and kind of has that same scene that you see in the movies of him like twisting the gates of Auschwitz with his magnetic powers um, but that book in particular focuses on him and his Jewish identity. I always love a good Magneto story. Yeah, me too. Yeah, he's definitely a much more nuanced villain than I think that many are. I like more nuanced villains. Oh, we watched Elemental back to watch lately. Really good. You saw it, right? Elemental? I did. It was. I saw it during the summer, and I think it was one of my what I watched comments yeah. in one of her episodes. Finally saw it recently. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Totally, you know, appreciated the 
immigrant story, carrying on tradition. What will my kids do? What are their dreams? What are my dreams? Letting go. A lot of resonance. A lot of resonance. Literal eternal flame. <laughs> Literally, yes. And that was beautifully done, too. Really yeah. interesting. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Pixar did it again. How do they always make me cry every time? It's just what they do. All right, on to our main topic at Journey's End. So, yes. Lindsay, you had this fantastic idea for, for focusing on this aspect of Journey's. Kind of give us like the why talk about journeys now, what it's rooted in, in, in Jewish thought and tradition. Give us some orientation. Yeah, sure. So one of the reasons we're talking about this now is in connection with the holiday of Sukkot, which we are currently celebrating as we record this. It's also known as the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths in English. It is one of the pilgrimage festivals, the three pilgrimage festivals. It connects us back to this master narrative that we have referred to a number of times in, in our episodes um, of Israel's mythic collective past. And one of the things that we're meant to experience or remember within the holiday of Sukkot is taking us back to the experience of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness or in the desert. And it's our dwelling in these huts, these temporary dwellings, spending as much time as we can in them, particularly eating meals in them, is meant to be live action role play in a lot of ways. Yep. Um, reminding, as we talk about, remind us that of what that experience was to know that our ancestors lived in these Sukkot to remind us of kind of the ephemerality of life and and to re-experience dwelling in the desert, not knowing really where they were going and being totally dependent on, on God for sustenance and survival in a very direct way that we can be kind of inclined to forget in our day-to-day -day living. And to remind us of, of the ways in which so much of, of what we have is out of our immediate and direct control and how much we're, we're dependent on what is provided to us, whether one sees that through the lens of, of God as the provider or what we get from the earth and how much we are connected to that. And Particularly, there's this connection with the holiday of the, the period of the wilderness, which is, of course, our epic journey, the travel from both physical and psychological of leaving the experience of slavery in Egypt, as described in the book of Exodus, to becoming a people, really, with a purpose and a mission, who are ready to enter into the land of Canaan and create a new kind of society and civilization. But the question that came up for us in our conversations around this was, do we ever actually get there? Even when you, when they do arrive in the promised land, what does the journey's end actually hold for us? And so Sukkot brings up, brings us back to this universal trope of the journey movement from where we begin starting point to where we end up. Maybe it is a cycle of venturing out and returning home. Maybe it is taking us from point A to point B. What is our growth along the way? And we want to look at the end of the journey. Is the end of the journey in whether in we're talking about in the Jewish 
narrative or in other narratives is the end of the journey what the main characters expected when they began can we ever really go home and does the journey ever really end oh man <laughs> yeah it's it's yeah yeah Sukkot's the season of our joy but this is this is a fairly heavy i don't know laden topic that's for sure but i love it mm -hmm. does a journey ever really end can you ever really go home i think the short jewish answer is no i think you actually never go home i was thinking about the first journey in the hebrew bible is adam and eve leaving the garden never goes back there and the next big one is maybe noah going into the ark with his family. Maybe that's like the next mini migration. I'm going to leave the ark, whole new world, not in the Aladdin sense. And then, you know, <laughs> Abraham and Sarah and Lot leaving, you know, the familiar of Babylonian civilization into Canaan. They never go back. Mm -hmm. They actually, and they will even like leave there and go back twice. And that is the end of their journey. Mm -hmm. Abraham ends his life only having bought a burial plot for Sarah and finding a wife for his son. And that's all he was able to accomplish, which was enough. And then I mean, his journey ends with his death, right? With, which I guess is kind of like where they all kind of end up. Can they be buried in the land? You know, mm -hmm. Isaac lives there, stays there, dies there. Jacob will go back after being taken home by Joseph. Joseph will be buried there as well. The patriarchs will all live in Egypt and become the Israel. And then they will ultimately go into the wilderness 400 years later. But as we're going to read the Torah this Saturday, we're going to get right up to the edge of the land. And then they're both going to go in and they're not going to go in. Mm-hmm. I love that. It both does and does not happen. It's like this weird Schrodinger's cat moment where we finish the five books of Moses, then we cycle back to Genesis 1, do the whole thing again, and we read from the book of Joshua where they do go in the land. Right. So we kind of get this weird fork where it's one of those two choices where yes, they do, and no, they don't. Mm -hmm. And then it's this rinse, lather, repeat over and over and over again. And I feel like the message is that we're always on the edge, but we never actually get there. So I feel like that's kind of like what our liturgical reading cycle takes me to. Right. And also, I mean, that makes me think of, it was a, a choice in the canonization of these books to determine that a, a significant unit ends at the end of Deuteronomy as uh -huh. opposed to continuing on with the story of Joshua and entering into the land. It was a choice really to say the part of the Tanakh, the part of the Hebrew Bible that we consider to have the most significant authority ends with never actually getting into the land. And that the cycle we're continually repeating over and over again, the cycle of the journey. And yes, we do read the section of the book, the book of Joshua, and we do engage with those. But I think in a lot of ways, that canonization and other 
ways that the Jewish tradition has developed have developed around the story of the journey being central. Even though, you know, all of the post exilic history of Judaism with the destruction of the first temple, certainly destruction of the second temple, and the development of the Jewish liturgy, right? We include in our prayers this longing for return, but the experience, I would say arguably even the experience of being in the land has been one of always being in the journey and either calling it a quest for return, but are you ever like actually returning to anything that previously existed? Or is this kind of a, you know, we express this longing for return to the land through, through prayer, but what does that actually mean or look like? And can you ever really go back? Is there a such thing as going back? And even as is experienced now in the modern state of Israel as well. And I think was always the case you see from early on in Nevi'im, we're talking about the book of Judges and, you know, all of the the early prophets where it's like you're constantly in this cycle of figuring it out. Like there's a journey that's happening even while you're in the place that was supposed to be the quote journey's end. Right. It's not geographical. In that or not sense. only geographical, at least. Yes, right. It, it, it's geographical and spiritual. You mentioned the exodus was both leaving physical and psychological slavery. The journey is both physical and psychological. I think the rabbis, through their canonization of how they do it, very much frame life today as, oh, we are always Dor Hamidbar. We're always mm -hmm. the generation of the wilderness hoping that we will at one point in the future finally cross into quote the promised land whether that is a physical thing and in many ways physically that did happen with the modern state of israel but the psychological crossing into the promised land that full redemptive state which could be emotional psychological personal all kinds of non-physical things were always approaching that but never getting there mm -hmm. or if you were to ever get there it would be some kind of like remarkable turning point in human history that is unprecedented mm -hmm. but it's always like this asymptotic you know getting there a bit more every year and passover you know kind of that bubble in where we larp you know that night before the exodus we open the door is this that moment nope okay back to life in the wilderness. We're not mm -hmm. at the, not going to cross over this time right. into that final quote, you know, exodus. So I think that, I think the rabbis very clearly know that it's also psychological, emotional, mm -hmm. the non-physical, the spiritual journey is a huge part of the whole thing as, as human beings. Mm -hmm. Existentially, that's kind of like always slowly fulfilling one's potential, but never actually saying, I've arrived. Mm -hmm. So we had identified a number of different journeys in sci-fi and fantasy sources and exploring this topic of the journey's end and can one ever go home again? Did you want to 
start off talking yeah. about any of those? So you know, one that comes to mind is Dune by Frank Herbert, the novels, and now cinematic adaptations. Again, looking at specifically Paul Atreides' journey, where he journeys from the familiar, his lovely watery homeworld, to Arrakis, where his family has been assigned to be the new stewards of Arrakis. The Empire has kicked out the Harkonnens to run the spice trade. It's now going to be the Atreides family. So that's sort of like his journey from known to unknown to the wild of the desert of Arrakis. And he ultimately journeys from even the civilized Arrakis going into the wild, becoming part of the Fremen, and then the mythical messianic Muad'Dib, leader of the Fremen, who then basically leads a multi-planet jihad and genocide that kills billions of people. So his journey from, you know, simple heir to minor low level of nobility, becoming basically a military messiah figure, Mm -hmm. leads him to a path of utter powerfulness and utter corruption. It's terrible. He does not like it. He does not enjoy or want really all the power that he has. And it is an interesting critique of power. And almost like it's happening to him versus actually, you know, being chosen by him. He sort of feels like, I mean, in the film and in the, in the book and the, the the series, the Bede Gezeret have kind of like created these conditions where somebody will fulfill this role and it might not even be Paul. It could be somebody else, but he kind of like becomes that. And it's not what he expects, no, anyone expects. It's not great. It's not this apotheosis where the boy king becomes divine. It's where the boy king has a lot of power and does terrible things. So it's sort of a happy ending expectation of the hero's journey. So that's one where it's subverted and becomes terrible. And then there's no resolution to it. He kind of just then, at some point, spoilers, you know, leaves and walks off into the wilderness, into the deserts of Arrakis, and maybe never comes back again. And then it's up to his children to basically carry on after him. How about you? Which one is on your mind first? So, I mean, I think because I've been watching Foundation, and yeah. even though I'm very much in the middle of it, that's very much on my mind, right? Journeys are always a, a part of it. There's both like the overarching metaphorical journey of how do we carry out Harry Seldon's plan to save humanity from a galactic dark age through the sort of mathematical calculus and his creation of the foundation that also involves literal physical journeys and you know the establishment of the foundation on a new a new planet that had not previously had human presence Right, as well as bringing up these questions as I was talking about a little bit, you know, the ship time jumping and that was reliant on this older technology before they had kind of like genetically modified people to be able to withstand, you know, the jumping that you'd previously needed to have someone wired in. And it's this interesting melding between like the ship making use of the person's neural system to neuro uh, neuro system to use their like will or intention to direct the ship to where it needed to go and so there was this that i watched recently in in season one 
where a person kind of in the last moments of their life or their brain and and neurons still functioning was able to through this intention or their desire direct the ship to jump to the home of the only character who survived the warden so spacers they're called spacers i looked it up the people who were able to who were genetically modified yeah or who were hooked in the ones who were modified the ones who are hooked humans could be hooked in but then they would like harm right. them well unless they were had the right. they had that like implant thing if yeah if they had this like surgical implant that enabled them to do it before they developed the spacers but yeah this idea of it, it connected both to the physical journey and journeying to I think this question that it raises of home and home and returning home and what does that actually mean? And there was this moment, you know, before as the warden is is trying to make contact where I, I had this like and nothing was coming through this sort of fear of, oh, what did home actually mean? Like maybe maybe they got transported, you know, back or forward in time or to some other mythical home that often appears or reappears in sci-fi series you know if human beings had originated from earth and have now been spread throughout galaxies did is there like this sense of the mythical home to which we desire to return it didn't end up happening in in this particular case but it i did have that moment of oh wait what does home mean for the or did home mean for this person and I'm thinking about that. And then I know another series that we both have read and enjoyed with the Ender's Game series. And do you want to mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that? Ender's oh, for sure. Game. I'll say season two foundation deals more with this theme as well. And you'll, you'll see that play out, I think, in season two, how notions of home and journey towards home will play out further. Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card, which is just the first novel of a many, many novel series. I've read some, but not all. Thoroughly enjoyed all of them that I've read. Focuses around the character Ender Wiggin, who is the controversial third child in a population-controlled version of Earth in the future. After uh, a surprise alien, alien invasion, Ender is allowed to be born because his parents had two remarkable children, unsuitable for battle school, battle school, to fight the aliens, allowed to have a third who is able to be taken up to be trained for battle school. And he leaves the familiarity of home to go out and learn how to fight off the buggers, the aliens who might be coming back at some point, they don't know, or to go lead an attack on their home world. And so he goes through his many trials and ordeals, finds along the way trusted companions, classic hero's journey, and then in the end achieves the result, and it's horrible, and it's utterly disastrous, and they've been manipulated and used and treated like weapons, not people. And the end, it actually Ender has this, this tremendous level of regret for what he was allowed to be used as, and then spends the next part of his life trying to find a new home world for the aliens that he helped to annihilate with this horrible weapon called the Doctor device. And 
Andrew spends the rest of his life then basically for those who have died, this is his own mission in life, but it's very Latter-day Saints in that sense, where he basically finds those who have been killed, whose stories need to be told, and he basically eulogizes them after research to tell their full story so they're no longer misunderstood. And it begins with the hive queen of the, the aliens who invade Earth. And that he then does that for centuries because he does uh, near speed of light travel, lives for centuries and centuries, and then does this all over the galaxy. But he never, he's never able to go home. Like he saves Earth and never goes back. So he, he literally never goes home. And he thought he was going to be doing this great thing that he was going to save Earth, but it ends up basically almost costing him his humanity mm -hmm. because he was going to annihilate another species. And in the third book, Xenocide, it raises the question, you know, how do you evaluate when two species, you know, it's, it's one or the other, how do you decide which species gets to live? Who decides who gets to live in the bigger cosmic battle for life? So it grapples with a lot of these questions, but he never goes home. And, and his journey ends, let's say, with, you know, tragic disaster. Yeah, so it's been a, a long time since I've read those books. I was just reviewing the list of, like, what are all the books in this series? Oh, there's like, so many more since there's then. There's so many too. more. I had read the Ender series, and then there's, like, the, the Shadow series. I'd started reading some of those, but didn't keep up with with all of them. And so what I was going to ask you, if you remember, is with Ender, you know, there's a this, the eulogizing is clearly like his way. I mean, since I'm still in the mode of thinking about Yom Kippur, like his way of doing tshuva or yeah, yeah. atonement for his role in this, I can't remember. Does he ever have an intention of going home or does he kind of see from the outset part of his almost like a, a punishment or part of the chuva is to perpetually wander uh, i'm not sure that's a great question i don't know if he feels like he simply rejects earth and moves on or it feels like he is an exile mm. right because the journey that, be, there's no way you can ever go back right because a journey could be you know <laughs> as they often <laughs> so you know in rabbinic terminology there's two kinds of rabbis who were no longer at a certain pulpit. There are wentaways and sentaways. Mm. So, and I, and I, don't, I don't recall if Ender is a wentaway or a sentaway from Earth, whether it's self-imposed or externally imposed. My gut says it's probably internally imposed. He simply wanders. He is drawn back to Valentine, his sister, mm -hmm. with whom he is very close. And his brother, Peter, who is this nuanced, villainous character, but he's not actually evil. He's just a sociopath. Um, but he's drawn back to Valentine. He actually is able to go in to get her at some point. I'll say nothing more about it. I think once he has her, that he has no need to go back for anything anymore at all. I think he's only tied to Earth was Valentine, not even Peter, not even his parents. So that's really interesting because that's also making me think of the ways that the rabbis create a portable religion. Go on. Right? For Ender, mate, the, the focal point that's home is his sister Valentine. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have to actually return to the place. For the rabbis, for Judaism, once the temple is destroyed, we create 
something that can be experienced, engaged with, regardless of where we are. So is the homecoming for Ender like the reconnection of the relationship rather than needing to be in any particular place? And in mm -hmm. some ways, like, does that parallel like the experience of the Jewish people living in all kinds of places for many, many centuries and having something that's like, oh, this is our home that we can always come back to in an important way, which is Torah. Right. And that that and can raise anywhere. You raise the important tension between tent and building. Mm. The Mishkan, is it the tabernacle? Is it the impermanent sukkah mm -hmm. structure that we can break down, set up, and put anywhere? Or is it the permanent building of the temple in Jerusalem, which is like the real thing? Which is which is the authentic, real temple? Is it the rooted into one place geographically? Or is it the permanent, flexible, dynamic, moving, portable version mm -hmm. um, of that? And that's a very, I think that's, is that the Haftarah for Holmoid Sukkot? I think it is. Well, that's, well, it's one of the Passover ones. I forget. Those are often juxtaposed by the rabbis. Mm -hmm. Like they go, the, the, those two things are in dialogue. Permanence right. or transience are always in dialogue in Jewish tradition, in that sense, mm -hmm. uh, which I love. I love that there's this conscious tension between which one is the authentic expression, and they kind of go, the tension between them is the authentic expression. Right. Yeah. We right. We one of the Haftar wrote that we we read on the first day is involves like the building of the temple, right? This is, you know, inauguration. And you're like, it's so interesting and weird that we're reading about this on a holiday that simultaneously is about that it's transience. Transience, yes. But also when we're reading through the, the traditional liturgy for the Shalosh Regalim for the three pilgrimage festivals involves this whole like, and we are not able to go and actually make the, the pilgrimage as our ancestors used to do because we have been exiled from the land and the temple is no more. And mm -hmm. so there's this focus on like what was and the building and the specific place at the same time that we are also experiencing and engaging with that sense of transience or the portability although i feel like the message of sukkot as we were kind of saying before it seems to be less on the positive aspects of portability and more on the vulnerability of not having a permanent home that's interesting too Yet it's man, right. Is is the joy of Sukkot imposed because of that to compensate for the, for the vulnerability, or is the joy of Sukkot? Others view the joy of Sukkot as like an inherent part of the day, mm. where it's sort of like confidence in we are vulnerable, but always under God's providential care, mm -hmm. and that makes our vulnerability no longer an actual concern. We kind of transcend it. Mm. Well, or when we have the commandment. Visamachta. <laughs> right, exactly. Be happy, damn it. Like you will be right. happy. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I was having a conversation with someone last night at the this intro to Judaism class sukkah event, and someone was asking me about like where is this, like what does it actually mean to be to rejoice or be happy on the holiday? And I was like, Yeah, it's mm -hmm. not clear at all from verses of the Torah what is like the subject of that happiness or the cause of that is it like a commandment is it 
by virtue of you know having these plants that are beautiful that we're cultivating a sense of joy what is the connection with that from the torah text is not necessarily clear no it is not Uh, right the joy of being in the wilderness the joy of is there joy to be had on the journey itself right or Or, at the end of the journey to me this is you know bringing in my more historical source critical lens is to say okay well the joyfulness is probably connected to you know this being associated with the fall harvest you're hopefully you're hopefully happy that you had a good harvest and even though that that piece of it is not explicitly mentioned in the torah at all um based on when it occurs in the year based on the fact that like these sukkot these huts were a known kind of structure that was used in agricultural societies when people were spending a lot of time out in their fields harvesting which might be at quite a distance from their actual home they right so so there's some connections like made between those two things but the torah doesn't engage with that directly but but it leaves it up to our interpretation what what does it mean to rejoice or celebrate at the same time that we are experiencing this sense of vulnerability the wandering the reliance on god's protection in these structures that don't always protect us from the elements we even call the temple in jerusalem sukkot david david's sukkah david's flimsy wooden structure even the temple is not in the grand scheme of things permanent it's also also temporary even limestone and cedar and stone is simply temporary from a certain point of view yeah so i had an interesting this came up in conversations over the with some people in my community over the first days of Chag, that idea of like the sukkah of david i'm like well first of all he didn't even build it (laughs) secondly right he had the idea yeah or it's you know right but so it's an interesting phrase to think about and like what the meaning well, of that is well actually is that actually then then his dynasty right his dynasty that lasts a hot sec <laughs> it lasts a while it just his grandson is bit it's a bit of a of a bit of a miscreant yeah, yeah. <laughs> his grandson oh my goodness gracious yeah not a uh, good person not a good person yeah yeah. yeah. So actually, journeys that don't end well. Journeys um, that don't end well. Yeah, yeah. David's grandson. I was thinking of Lord of the Rings, and in particular the scene, and I love this scene in Return of the King so much. I'm thinking of the movie where Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin have all they've all come back. They're wearing very nice clothing. They're on very nice horses. They look like men, not hobbits, and. They, you know, and people kind of, you know, look at them kind of like, oh, what are you doing here? You look all worldly and stuff. And then, you know, they probably go home and change into their regular clothes. They go, hey, we're back now. We're just regular hobbits like you. And they go to the tavern and they sit there and they're like, this stinks. Like they, they clear on their faces like traumatized, scarred for life. <laughs> Nobody can be told what they went through because nobody wants to hear it. Nobody can relate to it except for the four of them. They, you know, they each have their own 
version of what happened, mm-hmm. you know, they all went through traumatic experiences and they never really can go home. I guess the only one, well, maybe Sam actually goes home. Hmm. But Sam is actually then grounded in a family setting. Frodo mm-hmm. never marries, always remains detached. Pippin and Mary, we don't really deal with them at the end. They're kind of like really ancillary in that sense. Sam actually goes home. Sam's the actual hero of the Lord of the Rings, which they even say it out loud. Yeah. Frodo says it. Oh, Sam. Sam's the real hero of the story. It's true. Because mm-hmm. Frodo never goes home. Frodo has to leave. The ring has wounded him too deeply. Mm-hmm. And the the, 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 the the stab wound atop of the watchtower, he never heals from that until he leaves and goes to the Grey Havens. Metaphor mm-hmm. for death, I guess. But Sam actually goes home. So he's the, the surprising survivor of the whole ordeal. Mm-hmm. Not Frodo. And not Bilbo. Bilbo also mm-hmm. never really goes home. He has to leave the world to actually heal and then move on. Sam's the only one who actually goes home. Because mm-hmm. he's the real hero of the story. He's like the, the secret heart of the Fellowship of the Ring that no one really understands. You know, I'm just a gardener. Mm-hmm. You know, Yes, he's, the, he, he's the, uh, the surprise. Which is why I think they end with him. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like As you were talking about this scene... You know, with them like sitting there at the tavern, like kind of shell shocked. And, and they're not even speaking. They're not even saying anything. Just eyes, just like looking yeah, to this, no. you know, all with unspoken glances. Yeah, but it makes me it, like made me think of the real world experiences, particularly of, of people that I hear about. You know, oh, military yeah. veterans, mm-hmm. or particularly those who have fought in wars that are seen as undesirable. Or conflicts that are not in everyone's day-to-day consciousness. <laughs> We're talking about, you know, the forever wars, Vietnam War, any of those kinds of things. Like the experience, as I've heard it described by people re- trying to return and reintegrate into life at home. And how difficult that is when you cannot actually explain or share the experience when there may be trauma, traumatic experiences that are very difficult to talk about, describe with people who have not been in there. And like that, that kind of bonding that you're talking about between the group who's experienced this together is something that I hear reflected in the stories of you were in the trenches together. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And we use that in both like the lit talking about the literal trenches, as well as people who've gone through other difficult transformative possibly traumatic experiences together and how difficult it can be to articulate or feel understood in sharing those experiences with other people who have not gone through it so right the returning home yeah it's never never really going back to home as it was yeah except for sam yes sam is He's the exception of the rule, right, especially so in the cinematic version. Like, who I think it's maybe people? only in the cinematic version where this happens. I got—I haven't read the books in a few years. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or thinking about that, you know, this is like totally a different experience and context. But what is it about you know different people that can go through experiences that are very similar and emerge from it in a very different way? 
this is you know not necessarily a traumatic experience, but thinking about my own experience as a kid, you know, American living in another country during formative part of my childhood. My family lived in Egypt when I was in first through fifth grade. And that's a pretty important or significant time in, you know, my coming into awareness as a person and having experiences that I, for a long time, interpreted as like, okay, well, how could you possibly go through that experience and at an age where you have a certain level of awareness and not have certain kinds of ways that that affects you going forward and having the interesting experience of re-encountering or meeting other people who I had, you know, grown up with some and then seemingly did not have the same kind of takeaways from that experience in their subsequent life. So it's interesting to think about like what, how does the experience itself interact with like the particular characteristics of the individual in terms of like what the outcome is going to be like are some people more likely to be able to say all right i'm just going back to normal and other people not not doing that not evaluating whether that's good or bad but is it better to be able to go home or is it better to like never really be able to go back to baseline after a significant journey it makes me want to kind of go see and hear Tolkien talk about what he thinks Merry and Pippin's life might mm. be when they get back home. Like, is Frodo the anomaly or is Sam the anomaly? Mm. And maybe, maybe Merry and Pippin's story, you know, would kind of like flesh out more about how, how Tolkien thought about it. Is it that being able to go home is, is exceedingly rare or occasionally someone is so scarred they can never go home and they're like Frodo, like which one's the typical case. Certainly if from this the movie, you know, only one out of four can go home. The other three, two are kind of like forgotten about and one simply just can't go on at all living. Or is this and like so, a four entered the Pardes story? And one emerges. Literature. Only one emerges unscathed. Right. No, that, that, that's one really... goes crazy, one becomes a heretic, and one comes out relatively okay right well what is their journey into right. the four enter pardes mystical. mystical thought greek thought you know whatever that intellectual journey might be mm-hmm. one out of four comes out okay if three out of four come out you know dead or worse yeah that's uh i think about you know in that sense charlie and the chocolate factory you know five kids go in and one kid emerges yeah. okay the other four because of who they are and how their parents raise them fail on that journey through the chocolate factory which is, is a journey through temptation and you know seeing will they actually succumb to their own yetzer hara another journey novel different kind only charlie has enough character to actually have the fortitude to survive certainly in the movie version he gives back the gobstopper you know he gives up what his family desperately need which is better food than cabbage soup and more beds. He certainly does emerge unscathed, morally, ethically. Right. Um, other kids do not. It brings up another dimension of the journey, which is like journey as test, where it's yeah. like it's not clear in the Torah's narrative that the journey through the desert is supposed to be a test, but we do have allusion to that in no, the No, God right? Moses full on says it. It is it is explicit. 
lenasotecha to yeah. test yeah. you. To but test then you, see, right, the Moses is, yeah. But then in Jeremiah, it's like, oh, it was like a honeymoon. It's like, so there's like yeah. this, you know, was it like this lovey-dovey period? And Sukkot is sort of, I was saw in the earlier Sloan Rebbe's work compares the Sukkah to like getting a hug from mm-hmm. God, which is not a test. <laughs> That's a no. hug. That's a very cozy huga kind of vibe for the Sukkah versus the wilderness as... 40 years, will they make it? You know, no, they will not. They will all die and be replaced by their children. They'll make it. They do not make it. They, as a generation who leaves Egypt, they all fail. Their kids will succeed, maybe. Mm-hmm. They're all replaced by their kids. Yeah, the revisiting of the journey, like after we've gone through it and how we interpret that too, right? So it's like yeah. it's a test, but there's also a way where it's like, oh, there's, the, as you're talking about with Jeremiah, this hearkening back, oh, you know, wistful re- reminiscences of this intimate time in the desert, the honeymoon period, the uh-huh. hug, or the, you know, the experience, sometimes the contrast between, you know, the Mishkan and the temple, God's imminence, God being present, living dwelling within the people versus there will be one place and yeah god's presence is there but in the deuteronomy framing you know it's like we're already one step removed i will call choose a place to cause my name to dwell not even my presence yeah is there there's like also a maybe a missing or a longing for oh now that we're out of that experience it felt really intense and somewhat removed from it being able to say oh but there was actually this intimacy that we were able to experience at that time that maybe we're we're drawn back into with you know some of these sources are calling our attention to i think it's why when my high school friends and i met online during covid we're like are we romantically reframing high school as like that good or was it actually like that? Mm-hmm. And are we looking back on it with through rose-colored glasses? Right. And so we decided that, you know, we also have like normal stresses, but it actually was that good. We were, we were not delusional. We all remember like how good it was. But versus like the, you know, romantically reframing in the past, adding on the goodness. But it actually, it really, you know, it was more of a hardship than, you know, than a honeymoon period. Mm-hmm. All right, so to wrap up this discussion of At Journey's End, what is the unique Jewish lens through which we look at journeys? And you and I were both talking about how there's a kind of linear time, you know, you said a journey from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. And we talked about the hero's journey archetype where the hero leaves home, goes to experiences, then comes back to point a again back to home but the journey that judaism tells is a different a third kind where it's not linear and it's not circular but it's spiracular (laughs) (laughs) the word that we invented the word we invented for this podcast that it is a spiral it is a spiral that we might end up back in the same place but it's different we're different it's never really the same place we left because something has changed and and that's sort of like the journey that judaism kind of puts out as what one should expect from life or what we've experienced over history 
is that kind of journey. And I guess that would then be any story that, it, that, that comports to that idea would be then like a Jewish flavored mm-hmm. journey story. Yeah, and, and it just makes me think any storytelling that is sort of attuned to the complexity and reality of what it means to be human seems to pick up on this that right you can go on this journey but even if it's the circular journey journey home things are not going to be exactly the same either the place is not the same or you're not the same or both and that there's going to be this ongoing perhaps you know interaction between those two things that always means there's some kind of process going on and to kind of sum it up in a in a sort of cliched way it's not about the destination it's about the journey right in a lot of ways even though as we talked about a lot of our storytelling seems to be about a journey or a return in the end when you look back at the story it's really more about the journey and and what kinds of transformations the journey itself leads to more than it is about the end point. You know, one particular piece of art makes me think about this idea, which mm-hmm. is Sondheim's musical Into the Woods. Mm-hmm. Which is definitely, I think, within our genre purview because <laughs> it is fairy tale. Those are all fantasies. Mm-hmm. Act one is... You know, they all leave home, they go to the woods for some quest, into the woods, out of the woods, home before dark, right? Mm-hmm. No problem. We're all back mm-hmm. home. And act one, they all go to have their cliche fairy tale quests, and they all achieve everything, and they're all home, and they're all, you know, happily ever after, right? That's sort mm-hmm. of like the... And I have friends, dear friends, colleagues, who say to me, oh, I love Into the Woods, but I hate Act 2. I always leave after Act 1. And then I say to them, in the mind, you don't understand the musical. You live in a fantasy world. Because Act 2 is actually the important part, where it always ends with, you know, oh, they're home before ha- they're all home. Happy ever after, and then ooh, I wish. Like there, there's always more. Yeah, there's always more. <laughs> you know, and it even ends with I wish. Like even the the end end is a little bit of Riding Hood ending. No, or Cinderella ending with I wish. Mm-hmm. Th- th- it's never over. You know, mm-hmm. so they, they they're all back, and then happy ever after, or later, and they're all miserable. <laughs> like they get everything they wanted, and they're still miserable people mm-hmm. because they're people and they're miserable. Right. Yeah, it's kind of funny, especially thinking about rabbis saying that they don't like Act 2. And it's been a very long time since they've seen the musical, so I don't, didn't remember like exactly how it how it works out. But to me, that's like saying, okay, as if you only read the Torah and like no other part of Judaism. You're like, and they got there. And, they're, and, and it's like, you know, as if you, you know, get to the end of the Torah and you say, and everyone lived happily ever after. Yeah. <laughs> like, no 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 yeah so into the woods i think epitomizes that you know it takes the classic cliche into the woods out of the woods home before dark Mm -hmm. and then act two is 
and then life still stinks and you're still trying really hard and you're working mm -hmm. at it and then you go back into the woods and it's much messier mm -hmm. and much harder than before and no one's happy and you're just working your best in the end everyone's a little bit broken all the families are completely in disarray every household has someone died or gone missing oh, or run away yeah and and they all kind of come together in this new bizarre configuration of relationships and that's reality mm -hmm. yes much more realistic than act one which uh -huh. uh, my colleague who's i'm sure not listening but my goodness gracious sir please watch act two <laughs> you should remain unnamed I don't want to embarrass. Okay, we will not, you know, we don't want to engage no. in Motsi Shimra. No, no. But, like, I don't understand why he doesn't like Act 2. It's very strange. Yeah, that is very strange. I don't know. Some people, I think, prefer to have escapism as a central feature of their entertainment. But Yes, and that's legitimate. Yeah. Just maybe you shouldn't see that musical. <laughs> go see, so, go well, see something else. All right. So before we throw more shade at anybody. <laughs> yes, yes. Shade thrown, done throwing shade. Let's Or is it, is it less it's the shade of the suka? That's right, the shade of the suka. Yes. Though so that shade is That's I will important. always throw that shade at someone. <laughs> um, okay. What is in our minds to drag out from the Geniza? I've been thinking you about know, the Terminator movies a lot. Terminator movie that you want to bring out from the Geniza, the Terminator. What is sparking that back into your mind? And then I have an, an old one as well that I kind of saw a, a, a deep dive video about that I'll mention after the Terminator. What's mm -hmm. bringing that up for you now? So what's bringing it up for me right now is that I've been thinking about it a lot in reference to the conversation around AI in general. And I mean, uh -huh. for me, you know, I don't know. I'm always like, well, of course, this is something that we should have like been thinking about, been concerned about, you know, the potential for the robots taking over and, you know, potential conflict with human beings because we've seen the Terminator movies. I mean, Skynet is already basically real. You don't have robot hands going through to like stroke your baby from afar, but you probably could if you wanted to. And maybe I'm being a Luddite. I don't know. I've been kind of, you know, hesitant to engage much with AI because I feel like isn't engaging with it, like giving it more information so that it can get smarter and, you know, do those things. But I'm getting kind of concerned about what i feel like is sort of the like nonchalance with which a lot of people are like oh yeah ai i guess is taking over our lives and is gonna do all the things and you know haha ha. and i'm like okay well we don't have to let that be the outcome necessarily but yeah i mean you know just like arnold schwarzenegger particularly in terminator 2 is always in my mind there's just like the key lines when he blows away what's what's that guy I used to know, was it T-1000? T-1000. I couldn't remember if it was T-1000. You know, the Asta La Vista baby. And I'm like, okay, that's the energy I'm feeling a little bit right now. And there was an article, I think, an opinion piece in the Times that was like, can artists help AI make better art? And it was like, AI makes bad art. Can artists help it? I'm like, they probably can. 
Should they know? If you're an artist, why the heck would you want to be teaching AI how to replace you? I think there was some conversation yeah. that I saw emerge on social media among probably, you know, one of our mutual friends that was like, yeah, I didn't really envision the rise of technology so that the robots or artificial intelligence would be the ones, you know, making the art and doing creative writing and all these things. And that we have to still continue, you know, doing like physical labor. So yeah, I don't know. I'm feeling a little spicy about it right now. And Terminator is coming up a lot. I think also there's, you know, it's like, yeah, it just, it's like, for me, it's such a like focal point of my childhood because my, my brother, my younger brother used to go to some friend's house when we were kids, like when he was really little. And I guess there was like no supervision or something because he would, he was little, he was like in, in pre-K or kindergarten and well, they were in Terminator. So this got sort of like brought into our family orbit, maybe as a result of him being super into the Terminator movies and having, you know, little toys. And so I watched Terminator many times, probably as a, as a kid. I think I saw it in theater, yeah. the original. I think I was old enough to see it in theaters. Mm. definitely not hbo and definitely you know happily saw part two happily saw part three i kind of after that one like okay I'm, I'm yeah done. i haven't seen I'm the more recent more updated ones like it ties into in my mind in a lot of ways sort of thematically with the matrix which was like a huge <laughs> cultural landmark for me when i was in high school it was like everything was about the matrix but yeah the idea of human beings being sort of auxiliary to the operation of this world that's run by technological entities. Yeah. No, I, I actually, I was, when it first came out, I was just blown away and, you know, all, saw the Jewish themes in there, mm -hmm. saw Neo as Moses, Morpheus as Jethro, and the first m movie basically ends at the point where Moses goes back into Egypt to confront Pharaoh, which is that phone call at the end. And I'm like, all right, next movie's going to be kind of like, you know, Moses, Neo confronting robots, Pharaoh. How exciting. Didn't quite go that way. And it definitely more Christological, especially the yeah. third. And I liked the fourth one. I thought it was very entertaining. Hmm. And I liked the meta nature of it. I actually used to go on like fan theory sites in between the movies. Oh, and, really? Like, follow up on threads of fan theories and just speculation and hints oh my gosh it was tremendous what you could how much how many hours you could spend wasting time on that still true still true still true right i didn't realize that there were already sites dedicated to fan theories it was probably early after on. the second after the, the second, second one and after yeah. the third one was really more like you know, going or as two approached and after two into three, because those came out pretty close together. That was mid 2000s, where the internet was already kind of growing up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I watched, so, yeah, I saw on, on New Rockstars, a YouTube channel that I frequent, they have a channel called The Deep Dive, where they're taking kind of old films from the past and doing thorough analysis of them as literature. And Eric Voss did a great deep dive on Alien, which I've actually never seen. I've only seen uh -huh. Aliens, Aliens 3, and Prometheus. 
Um, never actually saw Alien. I was too young when it came out. Don't like horror. Never got around to it. And he just sort of like just did a great analysis of it in terms of how it is structured and written and how the the hero emerges kind of as a surprise. Like you don't expect it to be Ripley played by Sigourney Beaver. She's not clearly the main character until about halfway through the film. You also think that the alien is the villain, but the alien's not the villain. The villain is actually the corporation who's trying to bring the villain back home for experimentation. So it, it just, it's constantly subverting expectations. Hmm. But what's interesting about it, and it kind of builds slowly and is more prevalent in the second one, is the role that mothers play in saving the day. So sort of mm-hmm. the computer is called Mother on the ship, and it's actually controlled from like a womb-like control room. And wow. it's certainly in the second one, Ripley, who has been a mother. It's shown through some like on-screen stuff that she actually has a child who I think aged and died because of her space travel wow. being frozen. And we mentioned earlier, time yeah, dilation. Yeah. And then she is in, she's in charge of Newt, who's this motherless, fatherless orphan in the second one. And then she goes head to head with like the mother, the the queen of the uh, the aliens, mm-hmm. and so it's mother against mother. Everyone trying to protect their own their own young. So I just have a, a renewed appreciation for Alien, and I probably even would watch it again, or for the first time, knowing now kind of how to appreciate it thematically mm-hmm. and stylistically, and would definitely be you know attentive towards, you know. Jewish themes that might emerge beyond that when watching mm-hmm. it. Definitely, definitely made me think about it far more favorably and even highly. Probably one of Ridley Scott's like finest horror masterpieces. So, yeah, it okay. looks cool. So, it's, 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 it's that, that one's on my mind. Same Very period, nice. close to the same era as the Terminator, about three or four years apart. Yeah. Both about deep, deep terror, terror of our inventions controlling us, terror of outside aliens killing us, all about deep-seated fear. Yeah. Isn't that fun? Isn't that fun? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. right. On that very joyful note. (laughs) That's what we we pulled out of the Geniza this month. That concludes our eighth episode of Sacred Realms at Journey's End. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation about sci-fi and fantasy through a Jewish lens and come back to hear more. Our next episode will come out in about one month. And if you like this episode, please leave us a positive rating or review on the Apple podcast app or wherever you prefer to find your podcasts. And thank you for all of our positive reviews and delightful emails so far. This episode was written and edited by me, Rabbi Andrew Pepperstone. And me, Rabbi Lindsay Healy Pollock. This episode was recorded on Squadcast and edited using Descript. You reach us with questions, comments, and suggestions at sacredrealmspodcast at gmail.com. And may the Mepharshim be with you.